0: $15 matters, right? You buy a paperback, and you're getting something very particular before it, and you know what it is, and it sustains the existence of the store. In January, Emma
1: Snyder took over the Ivy Bookshop, and she joined us in the studio a month into her tenure to discuss her exciting new adventure. We explore the ever-changing retail landscape, and how an actual human recommending a book they loved can't replace the algorithm sneakily telling you what you think you like. Emma is super smart and interesting, and I think, if you can believe it, it has something to do with all those books she's read. So you are from Baltimore.
0: I am. Yeah, I grew up here. um, I was brought home from GBMC to a house in Radnor-Winston, which is at the intersection just sort of, just north of the intersection of York and Cold Spring, uh, and then eventually moved to Woodbury for a while, and then to Catonsville and Laravel. Oh, nice. Very
1: nice. And you were in D.C. for a stint.
0: I was, yeah. I bounced around for a number of years. Um, from Baltimore, I was in Connecticut, and then Louisiana, and then China, and then Wisconsin. And then I ended up you in You are literally DC. the only common denominator. Of those <laughs> yeah, <places>. right. <laughs> Somebody said to me, like, what was the through line? Um, and then I ended up in D.C. And I was in D.C. for the, the nine years that preceded me being here. So I was everywhere else, I, was, I only was for kind of one to four years. Um, what were you doing months. in those places? A variety of things. I uh, going to school, um, and then teaching elementary school, and then um, working for a magazine. So a variety of teaching and writing, essentially. Okay. So that um, there's some sort of yes, that is the yeah. three line. Okay, teaching. <laughs> teaching and writing are would be the three lines. I w- I would say books. Sure. Uh, shockingly, would yeah. be the three line. Well, then what brought you back here? Um, the Ivy Bookshop brought me back here. So I was um, in DC for about nine years. I ended up there. For a variety of reasons, Um, largely personal, thought I would be there for a little while and ended up finding a job at the Penn Faulkner Foundation, which is a national literary nonprofit that's in D.C. and does, it gives a book prize, which is what it's best known for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and then gives a couple of other sort of prizes, runs reading events throughout Washington, D.C. um, to present and promote exceptional writers of American fiction, and ran a large educational program called Writers in Schools, where we matched writers with English teachers in middle and high schools, built curriculum around their books, donated class sets of books, and then brought the writer in at the end for a capstone experience for the student oh, wow. conversations. And they were all very kind of intimate classroom-based size things. So 15 kids would be speaking with George Saunders about his new novel. It was pretty what? incredible. <laughs> exactly. Like, that exists. Um, so, And also a lot of local writers. And so my first job there was running that program and expanding it. And in part of expanding it, we expanded to Baltimore. And then I became the executive director of the foundation. And um, in that period of time, met the owners of the Ivy Bookshop, who had become the book supplier for the programming we were running at the time in Baltimore. Um, And at some point, I realized I had loved my time in D.C. Um, Working at Penn Faulkner was fascinating. But of all the places I'd lived, which were varied, um, it wasn't the place that I wanted to spend the rest of my life. And so I gave about a year and a half's notice so that we could start a transitional process. And I thought, I've got nine months where I get to figure out what I want to do next and where I want to go. Um, and thought it would be very long and open-ended. And about a month or so, a month or two into that process, I mentioned to Ed Berlin, who owned the Ivy Bookshop, uh, that I would be leaving Penn Faulkner a year later and that I was open and I would love to find a way to come back to Baltimore if I could. And he said, buy the store for me. And so that is the the story of wow. how I ended up here. Yeah. <laughs> it was a crazy conversation. I thought it was a crazy idea for about fifteen minutes and then I became obsessed with it very quickly and um It was the right choice. And it was absolutely the right choice. Yeah. Yes. So I came in about a year and a half ago as a, a partner in the store. Um it's about the year and a half last year and a half kinda Getting to know the community, getting to know the shop, getting to know... I had never worked at a bookstore even. Um, I'd obviously spent a lot of time in bookstores and done things with bookstores in my previous work. Um, loved bookstores as a kind of community spaces and just as places I like to spend time, but I didn't really know anything about the business of them. And so. And
1: today is your one-month anniversary.
0: Today is my one-month anniversary, yeah. exactly, of becoming the, the sole owner of the shop. So How has
1: the first month been?
0: Um, it's been terrific. It's been you know, overwhelming in ways. Uh, It has been vital. That is the word I think I would use. Um, And mostly because I've just gotten to talk to so many people about the ways in which they care about the ivy. And I think it's become very clear to me. A lot of people have used the word, and I think it was used, there was an article in The Sun about it, and it referred to it as a beloved local institution. And that is the the theme, I think, that I would say just from getting to talk to lots of excited people about it is that idea of bookstores as cultural institutions and mm-hmm. cities um, and as spaces that people really care about. I actually pulled a quote from that article that I <laughs> wanted to
1: read to you because I was I, I thought it was really curious or I'm curious to know uh, uh, your plan. You wrote I look forward to a very fun, thoroughly communal adventure, figuring out what a bookstore can and should be in this age. So I guess my question is what do you think a bookstore can and should
0: be? Ah, that is, it, I think um a question that I'm excited to figure out for the next you didn't 20, figure 20, it out 30, 30 years yeah but the first month uh, I've got some some groundwork um, I mean I think fundamentally a bookstore is a cultural community space I think we sell books and I often say this at the beginning of events there um, we sell books we need to sell books we want people to buy books there is a transactional component that is you know that is the underpinning of the store um, in a way that I think is sort of beautifully simple I sometimes liken it to the difference. In the 2016 – the run-up to the 2016 election, a lot of the conversation around $27 donations versus $2,700 donations. And coming from a more – from a traditional kind of nonprofit background of looking for large donors who could make large gifts, the thing I think is brilliant about a bookstore model is $15 matters, right? Mm -hmm. You buy a paperback and you're getting something very particular before it and you know what it is and it sustains the existence of the store. Um, But fundamentally, I think what we're there to do and be is a communal – cultural space for people to come together and have experiences that are meaningful to them around ideas, around books, which represent the entire universe of sort of ideas that have existed and that have been important enough for people to take the time to put them down into books. And that those acts of contemplation and the sort of ways that it provides a combined sense of kind of access to your own interior world while simultaneously providing kind of a third thing that can connect to humans. I just think books are these extraordinary tools. Um, they're like a really old piece of per- perfect technology, and we can't improve upon them. Uh, we haven't found a way to improve upon them yet. And so I think bookstores are really, in this current moment, independent bookstores are understanding ourselves to be that most fundamentally, something that protects a cultural legacy, something that provides people that space, um, for human connection and fundamentally I think something that people trust and in a world where often lately I think people feel a little atomized, a little alienated and like they're not sure of the motives often of institutions or businesses um, the motives of like independent bookstores are pretty clear and I think there's just a lot of social capital there mm-hmm. that can be used in really interesting and powerful ways to to bring people together and then you know, have people feel more engaged and more um, excited about you know the possibilities of what they can do. So, all of that is very generalized, and I think a store like the Ivy currently and what it can be in a community is it it has this um, sense of attachment that's been built over at this point s- more than seventeen years, sort of seventeen and a half years, and um. Through that, I think, and sort of wonderful operations and extraordinary staff uh, that is just so fantastic and so engaged and knows so much in various ways about our collection, Um, using that to sort of advocate on behalf of books generally and be a book-selling partner, but also sometimes a curatorial partner um, for other organizations in the city, nonprofit organizations, educational organizations. But one of the initiatives that we're starting to work on is also – with other sort of small commercial organizations or businesses that want some books within their um, their spaces, that you know, a, a kitchen shop that wants to sell particular cookbooks that they really believe in, they think are sort of interesting about different movements in food, or um, we're working with a, a new tea shop coming in in Mount Vernon, and they just they really care about books. What and tea shop coming in? Uh, it's going to be called uh, Pillion Tea, and okay. it's opening very soon. Can you um, say where? I live in Mount Vernon. Yeah. Mount it's Burn. oh gosh, I'm gonna forget. I th- I think maybe it's on Reed Street. Um, Great, I think it's right near the University of Baltimore. Uh, it's a wonderful space. I should know the address. Um, That's really
1: exciting. Yeah, it's really know exciting. How I missed that. I feel longer. yeah, it isn't open yet, yep. so that may okay, be part.
0: Maybe. But they've done the the work on the outside, um, and so they're going to sort of have a like a pocket bookstore. Is that yes, the idea? exactly. Okay. So they came to us and said we would love to be able to source books, but what people find when they try and do that is that the purchasing minimums in the book industry. Um, and the amount of capital you have to expend in order to keep a significant book stock on site is just something that's beyond sure. the capacity of a lot of small businesses, which makes sense. And one of the things a bookstore is a specialist in doing is investing a great deal of money in um, a, a great deal of money in just holding book stock. And so, which I have a question about actually. Yes. How do you choose the books that come into the store?
1: Because
0: mm. I think that your job,
1: probably in every way, is so wonderful, especially <laughs> if you love to read, which I do. Yeah. Um, But there's only so much space, right? Yes. And there are so many books. (laughs) So how do you I was actually trying to do a
0: quick estimate recently. Somebody was asking me, like, how many books come out? And while obviously there is a real answer to that, I was just trying to do a quick kind of scan in my head. Uh, And my my quick estimate that I came up with is probably that we are presented at least with the option of buying 10,000 new different books each season of the year. Um, And obviously we have – 2,200 square feet of usable retail space, maybe not even a usable retail space, 2,200 square feet, probably like 1,800, 1,900. So we currently have at uh, the main Ivy on Falls Road about um, 27,000 books, which is a lot of books. Um, But it's if 40,000 books are coming out each year, and you want to carry Dickens, you know, and you want to carry any number of out. Of, of any of the of other of books that, other I've other ever books that have out. ever yeah. exactly come out in human history, um, you've got to make a lot of choices, and so there's a, a sort of two pronged, essentially a two pronged approach to book ordering and curation. The first is that as new books come out, uh, we are sent what's called front list um, catalogs, and so each different publishing house sends seasonally uh, books several months in advance, saying. Um, what uh, what's going to be coming out? You know the next season, and you walk through that and you look at everything. You look at your own purchasing patterns. Though again, you're doing this in such a scale; there are just so many titles. It's not like you want to spend. You can't spend 20 minutes analyzing each purchase. Um, but you look at sort of, and you instinctually know these sorts of books sell in our store. These don't. Sometimes you just instinctually know, like I think that book has a beautiful cover, mm-hmm. or um, I'm really interested. I personally happen to be very interested in like World War One era history, so our store. Is going to probably carry more than the average store's um, uh, World War One history books, and so it's it's a it's a nice combination, I think, of using data and looking at purchasing trends broadly, but also being able to sort of um, direct them a bit towards things that you think have a lot of value and are really interesting authors you really believe in. Mm-hmm. So we do that. Um, I go through, or other members of our staff go through, depending on particularity. We have a wonderful children's specialist named Rona uh, London, and she does a lot of the children's purchasing. Um, We go through, and then after that, representatives from the publishing houses look at what we've purchased, and then we sit down with them and kind of... Talk through either on the phone or often in person. It's kind of lovely. We get to have these conversations about oh, you didn't order this book, but I really think you should order that book. It's going to be a big book. Sometimes it's, you know, we're going to do a huge media blitz and it's going to be on NPR five times, so you definitely need to order it. And other times it's, again, other book lovers who are saying, I read this book and it's really special and it's a debut novel and you haven't heard of the person, but you're going to want to have it in your store.
1: I can't believe you hesitated for 15 minutes to take this job. I know, right? Sometimes. It's, uh, <laughs> I
0: was a fool, but I <laughs> just got 15 over minutes it. Yeah, just 15 minutes of, <laughs> of what could have been the worst decision I ever made in my life. Um,
1: I think it's so cool to be tapped into this community like that. I mean, that's, that's yeah. really
0: neat. It is. It's an amazing community of people. Yeah. Um, I just got back last week. I was out in New Mexico for the annual Winter Institute for the American Booksellers Association. And I just, I left it. I called my sister, who is actually, she is a children's writer. So she knows this world and she has been to Winter Institute before. But I just left and I was like, it is the nicest conference ever. Because it's just a collection of people who have chosen to sort of dedicate their lives to independent bookstores and then publishers who take it seriously enough, you know, and the reps yeah. who want to come. And it's just a really wonderful community of people who really care about books and get extremely excited about very particular kind of niche interests mm-hmm. often. Um, so, yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Are
1: you still able to – I mean, I'm assuming you're a voracious reader. Um, does your does this job – I know it's only been a month of, of of you being fully in charge, but have you read more or less um, given I, the, the other work that you have to do now?
0: Yeah. I've probably read about the same amount okay. um, in part because I had the opportunity to travel and so I just got to read a lot and I actually got delayed like 24 hours. So on the one hand that was bad and on the other hand I just like sped through um, – two books while I was traveling that were terrific. So mm. that is some, it's, I think about that sometimes. There are definitely periods of time I go through when I just don't, I don't have a time to read enough. And what I actually often do somewhat sheepishly, I'll admit, is a sort of sample books. So I read a chapter or two from a variety of things because I want to feel like I can speak. You probably have to do that. Authority. You have yeah. to. I mean, there's no other way. Um, someone came into the store at some point this summer and I was trying to help them and they kept. We were looking for a fiction book, I think, for them to take on a trip, and and we were walking together. And she was. She said, "Have you read that book?" And I said, "Oh no, I haven't had the chance." Have you read that book? Have you read that book? We got through like five books. She just looked at me and she said, "Do you read?" <laughs> and, um, <laughs> like, ma'am, there are twenty seven thousand exactly. books. <laughs> I was like, "I do, but I am unfortunately, yeah, there are limited options, um, or there are li- there's limited time for all of the options." But, uh yeah, I. I worry about that, but I also, it's, in a nice way, I want to very actively make it a priority in um, in my life because I think it's a very important part of the job that I do know um, that I can speak with authority about things that are coming out, and I can direct people, and just I maintain my own sense of attachment to like why I've loved to read since I was a little kid mm-hmm. and what it it does for me. Um, I'm just healthier when I read on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I am working on like you know, factoring it into my day and rationalizing that as a part of my job. Sure. Um, but yeah, but one of my strategies is that I, if I read a couple of chapters of something and then I get distracted by something else, I allow myself to...
1: find a plot synopsis Not somewhere. have to go back, <laughs> Actually, yeah.
0: What's the best thing yeah. you've read recently? Um, I've read a, a lot of really great stuff recently. The two books I happen to have read this in, within the past week, that, um, so I can't help uh, describing them, and they're very different. Um, One is a nonfiction book and we're going to be doing an event with the author in April. It's called Losing Earth and it's a book about climate change um, and he wrote a large uh, article or they dedicated an entire issue of the New York Times Magazine to this article last summer which is the concept of it is that in his mind there was about a 10 year period in 1979 to 1989 when scientists were waking us up to the idea that climate change was real it was happening and it was had the potential to be absolutely catastrophic for the earth and for the human race. And it looked like there was a moment when kind of the global community was coming together and decision makers were saying, how do we head this off? How do we make changes that will allow for this to be, you know, while serious into the future, something where we're at least mitigating some of the effects? And then we didn't. And let's look at that piece of history and think um, about some of the psychology What was it that limited us and how do we go from here? And I think that for me, it's a really interesting book. It's wonderfully written. It's very readable. It's highly narrative. There are all these fascinating characters. And some of them, you know, a young Al Gore, you know, in Congress um, getting interested in the environmental movement, but some really brilliant research scientists. um, And it's just heartbreaking. Uh, But I think it asks this really essential question, which is what is about kind of our limitations in being able to conceptualize something on that grandest scale and what it has done to us and what it is doing to us moment to moment. And I'm becoming obsessive about that as a topic, um, as a, a lot of people I know are. Sounds because... like a very light vacation book. You yeah, it's a light vacation <laughs> book. So then I went and I picked up a novel uh, called The Guest Book by a woman named Sarah Blake, and that'll be coming out in May. And, um, it's uh, this sweeping historical novel. It moves from 1935 to 1959 to the present day and goes through several generations of a family. Those are my favorite books. The exactly. Yeah. yeah. Multigenerational. Yeah. There's, you know, loss and, and one of the characters is a historian. And so there's this undercurrent of kind of how we create the stories we tell ourselves and uh, the narratives both of grand level history, but also of private history. And it's just really satisfying. She'd written a novel that I enjoyed about 10 years ago called The Postmistress, um, but this was her first novel in 10 years, and so I think it's going to be a a book that people will really enjoy reading over the course of the summer. Good to know.
1: Yeah. Um, How do you feature Maryland artists in this store? I know that you have um, a lot of opportunities for uh, uh, writers to come in and speak, right? Mm -hmm. There's that community element, Um, but how how do you choose those books and uh, who's who's kind of on the horizon? That we oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So we absolutely love that. I and mean, we do a significant event series, and it, it draws both from the local writing community um, and the local creative community generally, I'd say, mm. and also writers who are on more national tours or reach out to us as they're creating their own tours. Um, but again, we have those relationships with publishing houses. And so it's that's one of the real opportunities. The more and more we can build that, the more we can kind of advocate on behalf of really people writing really remarkable things and thinking deeply about major topics um like the environment or like you know our current political culture um bringing them to baltimore for these no cost public events mm-hmm. which i think is a really wonderful opportunity but in terms of the local community uh we have wonderful relationships with all sorts of of writers in the area um and want to carry their books want to have events on their behalf want to hand sell their books to local um, to people in the local community, both when they're writing about our community and also when they're writing about the world around them and just to sort of support that um, community of of writers and ideas. And so um, we do a couple of actually partnership-based things with local uh, organizations. So the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance, uh, we host periodic events with them both where we put different writers and artists in conversation with one another that you might not where you not, might not think there's overlap and so we had a an event last summer where it was an astrophysicist talking to a performance artist about kind of um some of their overlap uh but we also they have they run a pair of um grant and award programs and so we do uh events where we present people once they've been awarded those uh those grants um and then more broadly we run writing workshops that are often uh taught by local writers um and then we love to host book launches and ongoing events from people um throughout the sort of lifeline or timeline of the life of the book and so both for hardback and for paperback um and I'd say One book that I'm incredibly excited about is that Dee Watkins, a local writer, has a book coming out in April called We Speak for Ourselves that's about kind of uh, life in urban African-American communities and specifically Baltimore where he grew up and where he lives and to which he is really dedicated. And um, it's, again, it's sort of a bit about who gets to speak and the narratives that are created Mm -hmm. uh, kind of outside communities but also the stories that exist within those communities and prioritizing those voices. And I think that that's an incredibly important thing broadly culturally, I think it's an incredible and just as important, if in not personal ways, I think more important um, in Baltimore. Uh, and I also just think Dee is he's a, just like a deeply compassionate human being and that comes through in his writing. Um he's also a wonderful writer and so I'm really excited about that book specifically, I'd say. Um, as well as a host of other books, and I always kind of uh, get nervous when I prioritize one book over any other because there are so many wonderful people working um here in the city. Mm-hmm. but um, we're also I'm very interested in creating conversations within those communities. and it's one of the things that I sort of look forward to in developing events down the line is um one of the things I often talk and think about is when to create events more and more that kind of feel like social events that have books and ideas as the anchoring component of them. And so the main Ivy is on false Road and has been there for almost eighteen years. and then we have, a second location at Burden Hand, which is a collaborative book cafe in Charles Village. Mm -hmm. And using that space and embedding more kind of food and drink opportunities into that to create experiences where you come and you mingle and you eat and you you snack and you have a drink maybe and you uh, then listen to a really interesting conversation um, from a writer, but also potentially between writers or between people in the community and writers about books that they love as well is something I'm very excited about developing. Um, Because I'm often struck... At reading, sometimes it actually just happens naturally in Q&A. People ask a writer, what have you read lately that you're excited about? They get so excited to talk about it. It's a lot easier to talk about other people and things you're excited about Mm -hmm. often than it is to talk about yourself. Um, The book almost always then sells out because everybody wants to read it because it's been recommended by Mm -hmm. someone that they respect. And so using that principle to think kind of, who am I interested in learning about what's – what they're reading, what they're thinking, and what's going on in their brain. And I think it gives – a real it is reflective listening to someone talk about the things that they are choosing to read and prioritize thinking about can also just be kind of an access point to who they are sure. in a way that's really personal and
1: well, especially if you've Maybe read something they've read, exactly. and to feel really yeah. connected to them in that way, yeah.
0: or superior or something. Mm-hmm. Yes, or <laughs> yeah. superior. Absolutely, that's my motive mostly. So. Yes, superior. Um, <laughs> um, and one of the other exciting things that we're doing is we have a partnership as well with the Humanities Institute at Johns Hopkins, um, that is run by a guy named Bill Eggington, who's a human humanities professor there, um, and. We developed this and did a few of these last year, and now we're ramping it up, and it's going to be a monthly ongoing series called Humanities in the Village. It happens at Burden Hand, and the concept of it is to invite professors off campus, again, not to talk about a book that necessarily exists or exists, but rather their ongoing work into sort of a question that they find essential today. Um, and so last year, for instance, we had a wonderful professor at Hopkins named Nathan Connolly come and talk about the... Um, Black cultural tradition that led to Black Panther. That a lot of people thought when the movie came out, they saw it, oh my God, this is an incredible story. Sort of maybe they knew about the comic book, where did it come from? Well, there's this sort of grand intellectual tradition that led to um, the the creation of these characters and and Wakanda and getting hearing him talk through the reading he had done and the work that he has done on that was just fascinating. Sure. And we think of it, I think of it as sort of like live action bibliography. Which maybe doesn't sell everywhere, but you know, sells to the book yeah, sells to the bookshop (laughs) crowd. Um, And so we have a we have an event coming up at the end of February uh, with an anthropologist from Hopkins um, that's called "Impervious Borders," I believe, and it's about the kind of cultural walls within the cultural imagination in America, Mm -hmm. uh, which obviously is a timely topic. And so again, looking at it, and what we ask them is that they come up with books that would be sort of accessible to a public reading audience as opposed to just to an academic audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have a book list and we curate all the books and we have them there for people to browse. And so there's this talk, but then there's kind of this engagement with this longer tradition of um of writing and thinking about those topics. And so that's going to be breaking out it's been Hopkins professors up till now, um, but it's going to actually include professors from Morgan and Goucher and a couple of other Loyola, I think, this coming year. Uh, and so, I really like that idea again of just getting people who read a lot and think a lot about interesting topics to kind of tell us what to read.
1: do you think it's that idea of community that is so essential to independent bookstores that I mean I know that greedy reads just opened yeah. and um, Emma Straub, the author, has her spot in brooklyn
0: um she it's does I love books or... uh books are magic books are magic I now have to I have to say, so Emma and I went to uh graduate school together oh, in Wisconsin cool. for writing um and it was a six person program for two years and uh There were two Emmas in it, (laughs) Emma Straub and Emma Snyder. So it's sort of amazing. We then – they announced that they were opening Books for Magic the week I signed on the dotted line to become a partner at the Ivy. And then I moved to Baltimore like the week they opened it in uh, Brooklyn. And I just saw her husband last week there who – runs the shop and uh, we were kind of telling someone that story and it's just this there's this odd synchronicity to all of it. Um, you guys
1: are like meant to bring bookstores. Yeah no our,
0: our, prof- our old professors are like the Emmas in their bookstores. <laughs> um, it's kind of cute. Yeah we, but it's adorable. We take a lot of pleasure. Oh in I'm it, glad yeah. I brought
1: her up then. I'd so know, yeah, yeah no it's <laughs> totally
0: no, yeah you wouldn't there's no obvious reason anyone would know that. But, right
1: um, but but um, that idea of of bookstores as like this kind of like magical community space I mean is that the thing that sustains them because you can buy books online but yes you don't have someone recommending them or a community built around it.
0: I think absolutely and I think that we recognize that more and more and I think both bookstores recognize more and more what an asset that is Um, and I think communities more and more uh, people in communities more and more are seeking that and I think um, I can I will I suppose make some sort of excessively broad statements out but you know I think for the last couple of decades with the rise of digital life, there has been a sense of kind of the world is going to be transformed by the digital world and it will be able to um, it will be able to replicate a lot of things that we have done in local communities and we have done person to person over time. And I think for a while there was a sense of it's going to improve them, optimization as a concept. Um, I think we've lost extraordinary things. I think we feel it on a daily basis and I think people seek opportunities are seeking opportunities to rebuild that and find ways where it is easy to habituate um, human contact and and meaning in an essential way into their life. And I think that bookstores read that way, read that way, mm-hmm. but so easily um, that it, it is making us an, an obvious way to do that and to build that. And that that is what we hear a lot from people coming into the store. It's an amazing thing for a retail establishment to be able to say, but people just come in and say we're so happy you're here, like stay, please stay. And I think there's that sense of we represent fighting for something that people are afraid is being eroded from our lives. And I think that that dovetails so perfectly with small business in general um, that when I, you know, I ran a literary nonprofit, I write, I read, I... Taught in elementary school for a while and I like taught kids to read, and that was probably the most meaningful thing I'll ever do. Like I loved books and I knew I would love the book component, but I sort of fallen in love with the possibilities of small business as a kind of transformative engine for places and for people to be able to assert their values on a daily basis. um, and for people for consumers to be able to assert their values on a daily basis and for individuals to be able to build things and cultivate spaces that they really believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yes, I think that, that that is an incredibly energizing part of what's going on right now within bookstores. Um, and I think another interesting thing happened very much charting that trajectory, which is, Big box bookstores started to overtake independent bookstores and made life really tough financially. And a we've lot of all ind- seen you've got mail. We've all seen you've got mail. So I went back on December. Uh, we signed. Uh, uh, we had our settlement for the store on December 31st. So on December 30th, I thought that evening. Here I am, kind of anxious. I'm not going to sleep. What should I do? So I watched you've got mail because people I also bring it, watched it up at the all end the time. of December. That's oh, funny. did you? Yeah. I was like, I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember it fondly. Um, sort of finally, because the story is a little depressing right it's a not an inspiring tale of um the you know there's also kind of like a borderline
1: me too situation going on where like he's like manipulating everything oh, and she's i which I, <laughs> I didn't pick up on when i was like 15 watching it but at my age now i was like tom
0: hanks like, precise no be I, honest yeah no there is there's a lot of of lying and misrepresentation and then at the end when she's like i wanted it to be you i'm like really you Did have you? a conflicted feeling about this f-o-x i don't think so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah entangling small children in your schemes but um but part of the interesting thing about watching it now 20 years later is that the story reads very differently um the thing that they were creating in the 90s uh, that Fox Books was creating um, scale and high inventory, sort of expansive inventory, lack of um, a particular vision, lack of sort of being able to see the story of curation that's happening there, lack of just kind of the human touch um, is was seen as exciting and as sort of a universe of possibility. And now I think that that's seen as a little cold and. Instead, um, the small children's bookstore hopefully would be thriving now. Uh, A lot of them were taken out of business over the course of the last 20 years. But the ones that have hung on are beginning to report improvement over the course of the last uh, couple of years. And last year, this is like an amazing statement. Um, for independent bookstores, I think the figure I heard was that 90 new independent bookstores opened in the United States, which wow. is nothing by normal that retail standards, question, but actually. there are like 2,000 in some of us altogether. I mean, we're just, I said this to some some um, wonderful guys I met the other day who run a furniture store in Fells Point about, and they said, I think there are like 2,000, you know, mattress firms in uh, in the greater Baltimore area, you know, <laughs> in Maryland or something. It's it's a small figure. Um, but looking at it you know, as maybe 5% growth over the course of the last year is just, that's amazing. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks to communities wanting something and people thinking that this is a viable choice to make yeah. and they can sort of see a life coming. And part of the reason I think that's happening is that Amazon destroyed the business model that, that Barnes & Noble and Borders had created that made it very hard for independent bookstores. And what's emerging is, I think, a, a universe in which as i say to people if you want a book cheapest delivered to your doorstep and you don't want any human interaction you should buy it on amazon we're never going to that isn't what we do we have no interest in competing on that at in that way we don't really compete with amazon if you want to come to a place where books are valued where you can talk to other people about them where you can get recommendations but also where you can just have like the serendipity of browsing mm-hmm. and if you want to come in and not know what you want and deter- and figure it out, then you should come to us because we're going to give you the best opportunity for You're that. You're making me want to go book shopping right now. <laughs> there you go. OK. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I think that that those decisions are made. So Amazon is, you know, Amazon runs the world. And I find that frightening in a lot of ways for reasons that go so far beyond the book industry. But I think in a very strange way, uh, Amazon and And the clarity of that distinction makes it easier for us to sort of proudly state, this is who we are, this Mm -hmm. is what we do, and if you value this, come here. And people pretty consistently who do shop there, so it's an absolutely biased group, but say, um, we perceive that and we value this and that is why we are here and we want you to be here. And so that's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. So
1: I ask each guest five questions, um, each podcast. Oh, no. You're really articulate right now. Um, so I'm going to switch out one for you though. Um, so this is just about your favorite places in Baltimore. It's, it's nice and easy. Okay. But, um, the fifth one instead, or the first one, I guess, will be a book question. Um, I read A Little Life. Oh, yeah. Have you read that? I have. Dear God. Dear God. Yeah. I think I, I I say this like not jokingly, but like perhaps serious. I think I have like slight PTSD from reading that book. Yeah. It's so. It's so just dark and intense. Good Lord. Mm -hmm. So. I'm wondering what the most
0: affecting book you've ever read was. Oh. Um, so I've actually thought about that question a lot this month because um, in an, uh, again, an odd moment of, I guess I think of uh On January 2nd, someone I know forwarded me an article from The New Yorker about the book um, The Movie by Walker Percy. It came out in 1960 or 1961, I want to say. Um, and it was this essay, the title of which was we still live in the mediated, alienated world of the moviegoer. Um, I read the moviegoer when I was 19 or 20. I was in college. Um, I read it because I it, it was referred – someone referred to it in an interview I was reading. And I thought that sounds like an interesting book. And so I kind of went and got it from the library. And, um, and I feel like it's that book that kind of in many ways changed my life. And it's this very funny um, – existentialist wander through New Orleans and Chicago around the time of Mardi Gras one year in the late 50s or maybe it's in 1960. And it's just this man kind of musing on um, how one kind of creates a meaningful life. And I read it at the time. I've long kind of said it was my favorite book, but I hadn't reread it in a long time. And I'd sort of forgotten at certain points, like, I don't know why it's my favorite book. And I read this essay in The New Yorker, and I was like, this guy, he told me again why it's my favorite book, um, which is I think that it is a book that is fundamentally about wonder. And it it sort of taught me, I think, to think that that, that was okay. And there's this passage at the very end where um, – the main character is watching a man come out of Ash Wednesday services and he has the ash on – it's it, – Walker Percy was also – he was a very devout, active Catholic and so there are a lot of sort of strains of religiosity or of faith that run through a lot of his books. Anyway, so he's watching this guy come out of church and he says um, – and I'm sure I'm going to botch this in some sense but uh, is he at, is he here at the corner of Elysian Fields and Enfants? Um because it's part and parcel of coming up in the world, or is he here because he believes that God himself is present? Um, Or through some dim, dazzling trick of grace, did he come for the one and receive the other as God's own importunate bonus? It is impossible to say, and that's like essentially where the book ends. And I just think that in light of a lot of the things we've talked about in a way I didn't really understand for a long time, sort of I read that book in a moment in time when I was becoming an adult in a world that was sort of heading towards themes of optimization as the future, when you go online, when you look for things in the digital realm, you find the things that you knew you might want to find, or rather, algorithms tend to direct you in that fashion. And I think that I find that deeply demoralizing. It's a very limited world that i don't I don't find emotionally fulfilling, and i I know a lot of people who feel that way, and i'm the book sort of has helped me, I think, chart a course and sort of, keep going Um, and I think that a lot of people are sort of trying to live outside of that sense that we know what it is we always want or we know where it is we want to head and that sort of we want to make allowances for the things that it is impossible to know and so that is a really lengthy way of answering that question well I
1: wish I'd asked that one last because that would be (laughs) a much better one to end on okay my next question uh, which is not going to be nearly as interesting is what is your or where is your favorite place in Baltimore to get a
0: drink Oh, um, I would say of late, my favorite place in Baltimore to get a drink is um, the new uh, place that Lane Harlan and her husband had opened, Fad and Sonnen, the wine bar upstairs. I, I just entered that space. I think it was, I'd heard about it, so I went like the week it opened and I just looked around and was like, this is sort of magical. The simplicity of the design, um, the clear, perspective on, like, what is a delicious wine, natural wines, which I just haven't particularly drunk before, there's just so much care in that place. And Mm I, so I've gone there a number of times in the last month or two. And I just think it's, it's lovely. And I'm delighted that it exists in the world. I haven't
1: gone upstairs yet, but I've gone into the first floor and the outside Mm -hmm. the week they open. So I think... I, I need to go back. Yeah.
0: But it was You should go to the Yeah, you should head upstairs. I mean, for a while the door wasn't even marked, so it was kind of confusing. I was I also have two small children, oh, yeah, so I figured well, keeping them probably, outside was yeah. a little more fair to the other <laughs> That's people. definitely yeah. more fair. <laughs> they don't yeah, need They, to go they might not find the aesthetics and the charm quite no. so <laughs> exciting uh, as I do, but yeah. um yeah. And on the other hand, I, I will also say I often go I live in Charles Village. I live like Caddy Corner. Uh, I live on Calvert Street, right around the corner from the Charles Village pub, and I was there last night. And it's just a wonderful thing to live in a neighborhood that just has a total a mainstay neighborhood bar. Yeah. I've been going there since I was, you know, nineteen, you know. Illegally? Illegally, mm-hmm. yes.
1: So all right. Um where's your favorite place to eat dinner specifically?
0: Oh, my favorite place to eat dinner. Huh. That's a more um, I think I have to think about that question a little more. Uh, Should we come back to it? Yeah, let's come back to that. Okay. Favorite place to buy a gift that's not the Ivy. That's not the <laughs> Ivy. Well, um, <laughs> now my family is going to know that I exclusively buy them gifts at the Ivy. Uh-huh. Um, and friends, I suppose. Uh, my favorite place to buy a gift is probably – Um. Maybe a tie between where I go when I want to browse gifts are current. Well, I go to Trove often in Hampton. I mean, there's just again, it's somebody who taste I trust puts together an incredible array of things. Yes. Um, and then also lately, the pop-up made in Baltimore store. I just love I love the variety of stuff there, and I just love the idea of buying kind of handmade stuff in Bal- sure. made in Baltimore. So um, favorite place to be outside. My favorite place to be outside is the Sculpture Garden at the BMA. I um, think it's just – again, it's uh, that I live two blocks from that is kind of amazing to me. And that it's open. You don't have to go in through sort of an access point through the um, museum means a great deal to me. So that i often like get a cup of coffee and walk over and just sit on a bench and be surrounded by green space and also art. I just feel – it it's makes beautiful. me feel incredibly lucky. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's a really special space. It is. So that would be my favorite.
1: And then back to dinner.
0: Um, my favorite place to get dinner in Baltimore is probably the Helmand, uh, which again is sort of, I've, I live two blocks from that. You, you live two blocks from that. That's an amazing place. Yes. To live two blocks from. And I think, um, I love it for a lot of reasons. Some of it is sort of associative from other moments in my life. Um, the food is obviously spectacular, but I think also that, um, that I know what good Afghani food tastes like is, I think, a kind of wonderful, a delightful thing.
1: You've so. added another layer to why I like it. I didn't really think about it like that
0: before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think otherwise, if it wasn't for the helmet, I just wouldn't really know what Afghani cuisine was. Sure. You know? Especially that so excellent Excellent Afghani, Afghani cuisine. Yeah. yeah. so We were very uh, lucky. That's neat. All
1: right. Well, thank you so much, Emma.
0: Thank you. It was an absolute delight to be here.
1: Thank you so much to Emma Snyder. You can find everything about the Ivy Bookshop at theivybookshop.com or at the Ivy Bookshop on Facebook or at the Ivy Bookshop on Instagram. There is a theme here. For past Hey Baltimore episodes and all the cool stuff happening downtown, go to our site, godowntownbaltimore.com. Hey Baltimore is produced by Mike Evitz and made possible by Downtown Partnership. Our music is by Super City. And I'm your host, Megan Eisenach. If you want to reach out, email us at heybaltimore at dpob.org.